The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 17. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. This last week I had the opportunity uh, to actually be a chaperone and get, get me when I say this, a chaperone for uh, my son's sixth grade trip to Washington, D.C. So it was, <laughs> yes, I was tired coming back. Uh, so it was Monday to, to Thursday night late, got back. And uh, it, was, it was awesome. Uh, I had actually never been to D.C. before. And uh, so I was a total sponge and had a, a lot of moments, uh, especially at the end, where I was sitting there and I had soaked up so much info that I just was like, I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't take it all in. And of course, just saying, hey, stop, go, come over here, go here, making sure we didn't lose any. We're 90%. We did pretty well. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. We got them all back. Somebody actually asked me that this morning. Did you lo- how many did you lose? I was like, we actually did really well. Have them all. Um, but uh, it was really fun. And it, I actually got made fun of because I was in a super curious mode. And so I kept asking the questions when the kids were supposed to be asking questions. And uh, so I had to be like, okay, I'll wait to the end. And then finally, the tour guides that took us around were like, this is for Stacy. The and so they started explaining things. Because I was always asking, like, I don't know if you've been to D.C., and this actually is kind of similar here in some of the buildings, even in Nashville and other cities, in the pediments, which are the, you know, the framework above the doors um, or major buildings, oftentimes there are these carvings or paintings that are these stories that are being told or images that are up there. And I was constantly saying, okay, what, what is that for? Because they weren't saying it. And I was like, that's got to be, so if it's, it's just framing the whole building, it's got to be telling us something about what's important. And, and it's surrounding us. I and mean, every building of authority has these kind of things. Every memorial for, for war or otherwise has this kind of like story being told. And I was constantly like, what, what is that? What is that? So they made fun of me a lot for that. But, you know, you read a passage like this one and it, and it jumps out at you because the passage immediately says, honor the emperor. Like that's how it ends. And it's kind of strange, like, especially if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, maybe hearing that is kind of like, okay, what's that have to do with us? And we need to first remember that Peter was writing this to um, a group of people that were under oppression by a, a, a Roman emperor named Nero. And so their timing was different. So when we approach this, this is what we often do in our church, we walk through a 
not only a passage, but a whole book of the Bible through progression, and, and we really believe in that. But we also have to ask the question, what, what is being said here in this passage that first instructs the original hearers of the gospel and what it meant to follow Jesus, but then after that, how does it instruct us? Because for them, a lot of the people that Peter, and if that name rings a bell, it is Peter, the, the apostle, the disciple, the one who's even, again, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, he's one of the most famous of those. And he wrote two letters that are, we call, that are called First and Second Peter. And, and what he was saying to this group, primarily of even Gentiles, who, who at some point were also Roman citizens, now they're having to make sense of what does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus, that the images that are above and, 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 and instruct, and, and there were images everywhere of the emperor, of, 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 of Rome, of the oppression, of what they followed, how do they now make sense of authority? How do they make sense of what their life is supposed to reflect? And as we've mentioned, Peter's book hits straight on. I mean, he is... He doesn't mince word. Peter takes the theology and the practice and puts it as close together as possible. So you're not sitting there waiting, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> he says, you're, who you know about God and who you are before him should immediately instruct you in how to live. And so we're going to look at this passage together, especially through what that means uh, as living as sojourners and living as honorable. So living as sojourners and living as honorable. The passage starts out by saying a theme that we've actually heard in almost every single passage that we've seen in this series, especially even the first sermon that Dr. Paul Lim gave, his outline was this about exiles. It says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles are really the title that Peter's wanting them to understand what does it mean to be a Christian in this world? And, and to be a sojourner is exactly what, what it was saying, is that you were a resident of a place for a long time, but you, that's not where your birth is really from. I've lived in Nashville for uh, 18 years now, 18 plus, and when people say, where are you from? Now it's kind of that moment, that like awkward moment of trying to describe, well, like, I'm from Texas, but really I'm from here because we've lived here almost 20 years. And then you kind of describe, I've seen Nashville change and grow. <laughs> you know, you kind of have that conversation. That's almost exactly what that word means, sojourner. It means there is an element of, well, yeah, I'm from here, but I'm not from here. That's what Peter's trying to get us to understand is, what does it mean for us to live knowing that our roots can't be set down so much here to think that this is it, this is home, this is all there is, and also that, that it just kind of is going to fall away, that we can just kind of ignore it, and we can just kind of do our own thing, and everything's just going to not matter. But, but what does it mean to be a sojourner and live in and say, I'm here, but I'm not from here? It means that it's a long, old feeling that goes back to the, the beginning of the Bible. It says that when, when, when God created the heavens and the earth, and he created Adam and Eve to live in the garden with him, there was a, there was a harmony, there was a home. There was a, a connection to the Lord and all of creation 
that was in a, in a way that they didn't feel out of place. You know those moments where you feel kind of like, I just feel out of sorts. <laughs> and it's not just because you had a weird conversation or maybe something's going wrong, but you just kind of, there's sometimes overwhelming, like, just feel out of, out of place, square peg, round hole. That's actually something that happened when fall, the fall came in. Sin entered the picture. And Adam and Eve decided, you know what, we, we can kind of do this on our own. Maybe away from relationship with the Lord, we can kind of handle this. He's great, but I think we can, we can do this ourselves. They realized they couldn't. And immediately, the first thing, they're driven from the garden. And from that point on, you see a theme of this overwhelming reality of not having a home, feeling not just emotionally, but tangibly like a sojourner. In fact, the, the Old Testament overwhelmingly talks about this thing called the promised land where the, the people of God are going to be brought into, but the promised land is described as milk and honey. This place is going to feel settled where they can have a home, but even there, there's this unsettling part about it because it's not quite home yet. It's not quite there. And the Bible talks about this interesting language of the new heavens and new earth, and especially in the New Testament, and, and picks this up. We'll see this even a little bit more in Peter. And I remember a story about a friend of mine who was a pastor sitting in a coffee shop, and he was talking to somebody like, you know, like I would do with one of you just sitting, and, and he started talking about the new heavens and the new earth, and he, he saw out of the corner of his eye the person next to him at a table had a cup of coffee, and they were like raising it to their lips, and they heard new heavens and new earth, and they were like this. They like jolted for a second, like, what is that? And it is, it's kind of strange. You know, just to, to the degree that we hear language, and we go, new heavens, new earth? I mean, what, what is this like? Are we, gonna, are we looking forward to a planet that has odd colors and like diagonal trees and like this weird looking, you know, like, what, 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 are, we, what are we expecting this to be? But what it is, is that God is saying, we're sojourners and exiles in a place that's not quite finished. And God is preparing us. He's making us ready for that, to be elect exiles, those people that are a group. And remember, these are people who were in the city. They were a part of the Roman world. And now, now that they've realized their relationship to Jesus is something totally different. Everything else is too. And that's what it should do. It should press. If we really make sense of it, it should press on us about what our values are, what our loves are, how we make sense of everything around us. Because once we were not sojourners and, or didn't realize we were sojourners and exiles and that we made sense of this world through us. And if you would say you're a follower of Jesus, just like you would before you had a, a friendship or before you had a job or something like that, we try and make sense and look at this world through a specific lens. And if you look at it through who you are in Jesus, he constantly is saying, my kingdom is not of this world, but yet he engages in it. He is here. It's just like C.S. Lewis who said it really well. And he said this, he said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It's since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. In other words, 
those who understand the tension, and, and there is a tension of falling in one ditch or the other, that we can fall into one ditch of saying, we disassociate from this world. Uh, the new heavens, new earth, yeah, we may believe that and we think we're waiting, we're just looking down the road, that's what we're really looking for. We don't really engage in this world. But, but what he's saying is you're a sojourner in exile, it means a long-term living situation. It means you're in this city, practically. You're in this life in reality. And so you must engage in it. And at the same time, that it's also not one that you over-associate with. That you over-say this is all that there is and there's all, this is all that matters. Because of the brokenness of it. And, that, and, and if we feel that way, we will never feel that we've overcome the tension of a square peg round hole. This world is broken and will be fixed. This is why the garden, it begins right after sin enters the picture. They're looking for the one who's going to come back and reverse the curse. It makes us all feel that way. And this is what's amazing about who Jesus is. When Jesus comes in the incarnation and, and why it's so profound for us to be a follower of Jesus is that he doesn't come to teach us how to live as exiles and sojourners so much. He comes to be a sojourner in exile. The, the only one that doesn't experience that disassociation is him, and yet he steps into it in flesh, lives in it, and there's all these moments in his life where he, said, he says things like, foxes have dens and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have a place to lay his head. And he's not just talking about, hey, can I sleep somewhere? He's saying, I've stepped into this flesh to experience and take on how you are exiles so that you may be brought home, so that you know your trajectory, your, your, where you're heading has to come through me. And the those who live most effective in this world in transforming it, and that's where we're going next, is not just as sojourners and exiles, but to live honorably, are those who know that God's not done yet. And we're a part of that. And that's where he heads right after that. He says, to abstain, we sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, if we're sojourners, we're, we're living in the city. <laughs> we're in that place, but it also says abstain. And, and anytime I think that word abstain comes up, it, sure it conjures up in your mind a lot of the <clears throat> negative kind of, oh gosh, they're bad things and good things. Like when I was, you know, growing up in youth ministry in my generation, I remember having this conversation with a group of people like, what does youth ministry talk about? <laughs> Speaking of youth ministry, there was so much of an overwhelming, like, this is what it means to be a Christian. It means you don't do all these things. It was always like what you don't do <laughs> and, and more than what you're supposed to do. And, and, and what Peter's getting across here with abstaining, it's not so much a push, it is, it's a keeping away, but it's actually a leaning into. Because what it's saying is waging war. That there's actually a war going on. That there's something active that we're a part of. When Jesus talks to the Pharisees often, so many times, 
they are trying to keep things that they are abstaining by making more and more laws. And Jesus is saying, the traditions of men, you're, you're trying to do this, but it never impacts their heart. And I think so often, particularly in Southern Christian circles, if we want to say it that way, or in over-churched areas, that the word abstain brings with it all sorts of things for us of what we're supposed to abstain from. And honestly, most of the time, it's not necessarily biblical. We usually make the judgment call based on what everybody else is doing or on what we think should be right culturally. And yet, what he's trying to get us to see is, how does the culture fit well to draw out your sin and fit in a pattern? When I do premarital counseling uh, with a lot of people, um, I often say this to the couple, and many of you in this room are like, yeah, I remember this. I'll say that, hey, the Lord has brought you together not just to fit well in the way you live life, but there are patterns of the way that the passions in your flesh works against each other fits well too. So how do you wage war against it? In fact, you know what the word, the Greek language for waging war is have a military campaign against. How do we set up a military campaign against the way that this world is telling us, what are the values that the Lord calls for us to abstain, but also to bring in? Not just us. And maybe those things are things that we've thought, oh, all the time. Well, you just don't do this and you do this. But, but why? See, Peter's saying we're supposed to, to bring in what is right. Because when he says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, honorable. The word honorable is a word that, that describes, and it says conduct. We can typically think if I'm moral and if I'm nice. You know, to be more nice, or maybe if I, my life is more well run, then more people will be attracted to Jesus. But actually what it's saying, it's, it's a more beautiful language. It, it literally means having a beautiful lifestyle. It means that your life is beautiful. It's so attractive by the way that you care and love and are kind and engage and yet know where God calls to love and where he calls to push away. And that can be the tension for us. How is that? That's why so many people say, they're like, ah, Christianity because they're not seeing beautiful life, they're just seeing a rule, code, moral, ethic, rather than what is a beautiful lifestyle? There's a book written by a guy named Sheldon Van Auken, and it's called A Severe Mercy. Some of you may have heard of this. And I love what he says about, he was an Oxford professor and he had a lot of friends in London. It's a very intelligent community and um, was really not a Christian. And he writes this book to talk about how he becomes uh, a Christian. And, and listen when he says how the people that were Christians impacted him. He said, these were our first friends, close friends. More to the point, perhaps, all five were keen, deeply committed Christians. But we liked them so much that we forgave them for it. We began hardly knowing we were doing it to revise our opinions, not of Christianity, but of Christians. 
Our fundamental assumption, which we had been pleased to regard as an intelligent insight, had been that all Christians were necessary, stuffy, hidebound, or stupid, people to keep one's distance from. We had kept our distance so successfully, indeed, that we didn't know anything about Christians. Now, that assumption soundlessly collapsed. The sheer quality of the Christians we met at Oxford shattered our stereotype And thenceforward, a reference in a book or conversation to someone being a Christian called up an entirely new image. Moreover, the astounding fact sank home that our own contemporaries could be at once highly intelligent, civilized, witty, fun to be with, and Christian. Think about what what, what Sheldon Van Auken is saying there. What what does it mean for us to live beautiful lives that impact, that, that have limits, And yet what's being put forward isn't so much a moral code or what we are against, but we're for who we are. A sojourner in exile can give the idea that we're just trying to pass through without bumping into anybody, but that's actually the opposite of what it's saying. It's saying that as a sojourner in exile, you recognize how out of place you are and yet you live in that place. Because Jesus himself has done the same. And he does so by saying this really interesting phrase. Where, where, where do you think he would go next? Oh, he goes straight to the heart of politics. <laughs> Very easy for all of us. Verse 13, he begins by saying this, and I think this is fascinating. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake. And then verse 16, live as people who are free. We're supposed to be free subjects or subjects who are free. How does that work? Well, let's look at it. This is what he says, and this is how he gets to the heart of it. He says, we're supposed to be subject to every, as he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, to be clear, let's remind ourselves again, where is Peter writing this? To a group of people who are watching their friends being burned at the stake, being cast into a stadium for lions to feed on them. With Nero at the helm, Christianity was often blamed for like the burning of Rome and amongst other things in historical accounts. And yet what Peter's trying to do is not say agree with the emperor, but honor. That's a very different thing. And to be subject, it actually, human institution could actually say, every human creature. It means every human creature has an image put on them that's different. That we ourselves first need to see something, and we need to say this, that we need to see ourselves as humble, that we aren't always the correct ones. See, notice, it says, be subject, what? To, for the Lord's sake. For his sake. Not for Nero's sake, but for God's sake. To be patient, to know who you are. I I, I was talking to somebody earlier about this quote. It may have been a C.S. Lewis quote, it may not be, but it it rings true from this. But listen, it, it talks about how we see government and politics on ourselves. Listen. It's from a book possibly called The Screwtape Letters where, where devils tempt uh, the patients, which are us, to move away from God. 
said this, be sure that the patient remains completely fixated on politics. Arguments, political gossip, and obsessing on the faults of people they have never met serves as an excellent distraction from advancing in personal virtue, character, and the things the patient can control. Make sure to keep the patient in a constant state of angst, frustration, and general disdain towards the rest of the human race in order to avoid any kind of charity or inner peace from further developing. Ensure that the patient continues to believe that the problem is out there in the broken system rather than recognizing there is a problem with himself keeping up the good work. So the question first comes for us as if we really are sojourners and exiles, are we able to see as many things wrong about our political candidate or party than anyone else's? Are we able to see the things in our own lives that are just as wrong? No matter who wins, that there's always going to be disappointment. Because God did, yes, bring government in for work, but not for worship. And that's where it moves for us. So the hope isn't always when we're voting, when we're stepping into those realms that we got it right but that we're serving and stepping in of who do we ultimately trust in. What do politics and those kind of things, governing authorities do so much for us, just like many other things in our life? They provoke our fears. They provoke what do we really fear? And what was Jesus' political platform? Because he won, but what did he win on? You see it laid in this table right before you. Jesus, as the ultimate one who had home, became an exile and gave his body and blood and died in the gruesome, shameful cross as actually a political person against. It was an insurrectionist. That's why he was actually crucified in many ways. So that he might bring us into a family that we would never be cast out. Why does it say, and he... I love that Peter gives us this summary at the end. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. How can you honor the emperor only if you fear God? It doesn't mean we don't struggle. It doesn't mean we don't have angst or difficulty or hardship or things. But Jesus sought it out by also speaking into it, but also dying. Chapter 22, Matthew chapter 22, one of the famous verses, even again, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, it's about paying taxes to Caesar. The famous line, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Do you know this is one of the only places where there's a bipartisan effort from people on the Pharisee side and the Herodians who were the conservatives and liberals to take Jesus down. And this is what Jesus comes back to them with. Holds up a coin. Whose inscription is this? Well, it's Caesar's. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus doesn't say we're not to be engaged or not to care. We can't do that or take that position. He says we need to give back. We need to honor what is there. 
It doesn't mean we don't speak into wrongdoing. It doesn't mean that there are things, think about the time again, it's Nero's time. It's not a moment where they didn't show plenty of civil disobedience, but there are also moments where they honored by the way that they carried themselves of beautiful lives, loving the city and the people in it. The church was the place that took in the cast, those cast out. You know, over the centuries, the ways that we've had education and health systems have come out of the church seeing a need in actually developing those. You can see its influence in all of that. Because the difference between them is that God sets it up not for worship, but for work. To step into the government, honoring and caring for We shouldn't be looking to the government for things that we as a church should be doing. And we should be looking to the government, stepping into it for the things that it should. But you know what's interesting? When he holds up that coin and he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, that image is on the coin. Render to God's what is God's, what does he hold up? He doesn't have anything to hold up. Where is God's image? It's on everyone. It's on every single person. How can we honor the emperor by saying, you know what? Because I fear God, I can honor those who are even in a position I would think is horrible, didn't vote for, don't care about, and yet God has put himself in a position to do that with us. You know, this table is exactly what this last part of this passage drives us to, that we're free subjects, subjects that are now free. And it says this, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as living as servants of God. You know, when I went to D.C., if there's one thing, if you've been there or lived there, uh, looked at architecture, the, the, the word that covers the buildings and everything is freedom. Liberty is another uh, uh, synonym for it. But freedom is everywhere. It's disgust. It's the thing needed. But here's what's interesting about freedom. We often talk about freedom as something we get that brings us out of restraint. But the Bible gives us the reality of you're always free from something. If you seek freedom, you're free from something, but you are always free toward something else. And hear what he says. Live as people who are free, are free, living, we're active in our freedom, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as what? Servants of God. On the top of the Capitol building is Lady Freedom. And fascinating thing, I have a, a giant statue of it inside. I'm sure you'll hear plenty of DC illustrations over the next few weeks, so get used to it. But uh, one of the things that's cool about it is Lady Freedom always faces east because they say that the sun never sets on freedom. And one of the things that's interesting about the freedom we're talking about here is that the one who actually made that sun gave up his freedom. Jesus actually, at a moment on the cross, said, I am willing to die, say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To experience what he had never experienced, not 
separation in the sense of feeling in the flesh and as an exile, but even an exile for a moment from his own father that we're constantly struggling with so that we can know when you taste this, you're tasting home, tasting freedom, tasting the good news that's over you that it will never set. There's no sun that sets on this. The freedom is yours. And it activates you. It drives you to live, to fear God and honor the emperor, not the other way around. To live as one who's a subject, a servant first of the Lord God, the king of the universe. That's why we sang all the songs we sang. So that you can live in freedom and struggle in this world because one day Jesus is coming back and you won't feel that anymore. I can't wait. And we will know who the true king is. And we will live without ever feeling as exiles again. We will be home. But for now, you only get a taste. Let's stand together.